Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Emily Sandoz, Evelyn Gould, and Troy Dufresne about their paper, Ongoing Explicit and Direct Functional Assessment is a Necessary Component of ACT as Behavior Analysis, a Response to Tarbox et al. 2020. Emily is an endowed professor of social sciences in the psychology department at the University of Louisiana Lafayette, and she is the director of the Louisiana Contextual Science Research Group. Evelyn is a trainer and supervisor at the New England Center for OCD and Anxiety and an assistant clinical professor at Keck School of Medicine at USC. She is also a research associate in psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. Troy is an associate with the San Francisco Center for Compassion-Focused Therapies and a PhD candidate in clinical psychology at the California School of Professional Psychology in San Francisco. All of the guests today have published extensively on the topic of acceptance and commitment training or therapy and are quite knowledgeable on the topic. It was a lot of fun to speak with them all and I'm excited to share the interview with you. So without further ado, here's my interview with Emily Sandoz, Evelyn Gould, and Troy Dufresne. Hello, Emily, Evelyn, and Troy. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Really excited to have you all joining us today to talk about this paper that you wrote as a response to the Tarbox et al. 2020 paper, which I'll point out for the listeners who are maybe learning about this topic for the first time. I did reach out to Jonathan Tarbox to see if he would also be interested in coming on Batcast. He was interested. The scheduling just simply didn't work out. And so we don't have that fully uh, or that perspective fully laid out within Batcast. Maybe in a future season, we may be able to bring him back on or something like that. But um, just so everyone knows, and we will talk a little bit about his particular paper throughout this podcast, of course. But all that aside, before we jump into the topic, we'd love to hear a little bit about all of your uh, sort of interest in this topic. So would you mind telling us what you currently do as your main role? Everyone always has like a million roles, but some of your main roles and why you're interested in this topic. 
Sure. Thanks, Cody. Um, so I'm Emily Sandoz, um, and I am a professor of psychology um, at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Um, that's my main gig. Uh, I also have a private practice. I'm licensed as a clinical psychologist, and I just recently earned my BCBA. Um, and, you know, I think broadly my interest in this topic um, comes from straddling those two worlds. <laughs> um, I was really, really uh, I think losing my steam, feeling more and more disinterested with psychology when I discovered behavior analysis, um, which made the whole rest of psychology make sense to me. It provided me with a framework through which I could understand all, all of uh, the, the other subdisciplines within psychology. Um, and then trying to bring that to bear in a clinical psychology program. And as I was you know, developing my uh, clinical psychology skills as a psychotherapist, um, really needing to bring behavior analysis along, I think, into that context. Um, so I've been grinding on that for about a decade now and trying to figure out how in the world we uh, answer that challenge um, of clinical behavior analysis. You know, how is it that just talking in this one context um, could change, you know, people's worlds and the behaviors they can bring to bear in those worlds? So yeah, that's me. And so does your interest then in, in both the clinical psych world behavior analysis world is that where you sort of came to be interested in act and and ultimately interested in writing this paper yeah so um actually clinical psychology for me sort of was act from the beginning um so i wasn't i really wouldn't say i have expertise in any other approach um but before i was a clinical psychologist i was a line tech, really. I mean, I was a, a behavior therapist under Dr. Mita Patel from UNR um, and was doing work in home programs, doing 40 hours a week, you know, ABA discrete trial training circa like year 1996 or something like ABA as it was then. Um, and, you know, wanted to bring that same way of, of looking at behavior and context to bear in the psychotherapy room. So I went towards ACT because it was behavior analytically based. Um, and I found massive gaps between what I understood as behavior analysis and what I was being sort of taught as, um, as ACT or what we were disseminating as ACT. So, yeah, that's where the, the interest for me came to bear. Awesome. Thank you. Evie, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're interested in this topic? Sure. Uh, so I'm Evelyn Gould. I am also a psychologist and a behavior analyst, but I have almost like the flip story of Emily. Um, although similarly, I do clinical work and also a lot of training and supervision and also have hands in research and things like that. But I would say my primary primary world or role is clinical for sure, whether that's training clinicians or actual practice of practicing clinical work myself, but have a flip kind of story of Emily's where I started off from the get-go in behavior analysis and ABA and EIBI and all different, basically did uh, behavior and analytic work in all different settings. Um, but something was missing for me there and working with highly verbal humans a lot of the time, parents, uh, training, students, um, clients and everything, and really ended up kind of shimmying over to psychology to have broader access to various different things, whether that be training opportunities, practice opportunities, mentorship, and tools to actually help me. I was looking, I kind of stumbled across ACT and thought maybe there's something in here that could be helpful to me. 
So I also am interested in this topic because I'm also straddling both worlds. Um, but sort of Emily and I kind of met in the, <laughs> in the middle of like, we don't really feel like we fit in. I remember having that conversation with you, Emily, like I don't really feel like I have a home in either. I'm kind of like weirdly straddling the two things. And I was like, me too. I feel the same way. Um, and I think both, I'm also like you, Emily, trying to pull the two together because I think my heart is in behavior analysis. I think my passion is there. I'm so passionate about um, being a behavior analyst, but I really want to bring that into the rest of psychology. That is the framework that I understand everything. And I think we have a lot to offer, a huge amount to offer. And also other people have things going on and know some stuff that could be useful to us um, as long as we keep our lenses, our behavior analytic lenses on. Um, but I'm going to stop talking and let Troy take up some airspace because he also has an interesting story too. <laughs> Well, hi, Cody. Uh, my name is Troy Dufresne. Um, what do I do? Uh, <clears throat> I largely uh, do clinical psychology work as well. So that's one thing. You've got sort of three fence straddlers on here, but I'm a um, licensed behavior analyst as well. Um, I actually came into the whole thing in a totally weird and different way. I started quite late in life um, working for a book publisher who was doing a lot of support of what was at the time a very nascent acceptance and commitment therapy community that started about 2006. And um, I went to my first ACBS Summer Institute in Houston, I think was 06, and um, met Emily there while she was a graduate student. And uh, so I was a booster for ACT for a long time before I even had any incl inclination that I would enter the field. Um, and then after doing that for quite a long time and actually watching and organizing a lot of ACT trainings for behavioral therapists, um, I realized I was playing for the wrong team. And uh, so I decided to um, start training. I had a gap year uh, between leaving industry and starting my doc program. And that's when I did the behavior analysis of VCS. Uh, you see uh, Cal State San Marcos and... Um, yeah, so the rest was just kind of history. My educational background primarily is in philosophy. And um, so I tend to haunt those poorly attended philosophy uh, sessions at conferences that happen like at an ungodly hour of Sunday morning. And, um, you know, I actually have come to the conclusion really that the discipline of psychology at large is paradigmatic, not pre-paradigmatic, which is something I've been saying for a long time, but I think I've been wrong. Um, and I think that the um, uh, learning theory as we have it in behavior analysis is in fact the paradigm that if we could just get over ourselves and agree was the case, you can pretty much explain um, all psychological phenomena and all clinical psychological theory um, using this. And um, so in a way when these two trailblazers um, uh, started suggesting that you could be a clinical behavior analyst, <laughs> some years ago. I'm like, that's what I want to do. Um, and uh, so really why I came to the paper and why we wanted to respond to uh, Jonathan and his colleagues really was that I've seen a lot of ACT training over the years, and I'm not entirely satisfied with the direction that it's headed for psychotherapists. And since we're on this cusp of wanting to invite more BCBAs into the ACT space, I think it's quite important that we speak up so that we don't repeat some of those mistakes in the future. Awesome. You guys all have sort of different and very unique backgrounds that brought you here. 
if you don't mind me asking, how did you all meet? Was there a, a fence straddler support group that you guys were attending or how did that work? One, one of those philosophy talks on a Sunday morning, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So I met Troy at a summer institute, uh, the ACT Summer Institute. You know, uh, Kelly Wilson was my mentor and he was like, go work with that guy. He's not a therapist. <laughs> So, um, you know, we were doing all these clinical role plays and stuff, you know, help, help orient him. Um, and so Troy and I spent a lot of quite intimate time together over that weekend. Um, and I think Evelyn and I were introduced actually by Jonathan Tarbox, um, as Evelyn, I think you were just kind of getting in the first time you were just getting into your act journey. Um, and Jonathan introduced us and we found our, yeah, no, go ahead. Actually. Well, yes, but no, I was already in that journey quite a long time before that, but just was didn't know there was people at ABAI in that journey. That's yeah. the thing. So I had actually taken a break, I think, from ABAI and was going trying to dabble in ACBS and was trying to find people and then didn't know that people like you, Emily, and, and Amy Morell and people actually went to ABAI and... I don't know somehow I got introduced to you, but yes, it was definitely through Jonathan. I guess I might've just started working with Jonathan. That's on yeah. art stuff or something. That must've been what it was. But yeah. And then I definitely met Troy. I must've met you through Emily, I think. I'm guessing Absolutely. if it wasn't at one of those talks, it was through Emily, but I go to those talks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is funny, you know, I think a lot of times people hear philosophy and clinical application and they think of those as like two far sides of the field that are like not at all connected or that you have to do a lot of kind of basic science connecting in order to link them. I think we've all found um, and, and come to write this you know, paper in part because of our understanding that the philosophy actually has pretty direct practical implications and not just in a broad theoretical way, in a moment to moment way that the philosophy underlying behavior analysis um, has immediate and acute um, implications in any moment of a clinical intervention. Um, so it's certainly what has in part kept us talking and working together. Well, and I think that's a perfect segue into the topic at hand, which is your your response to, again, the Jonathan Tarbox 2020 paper that was looking at sort of describing act or acceptance and commitment training and sort of juxtaposing that to acceptance and commitment therapy sort of proper, if I'm distinguishing between those correctly. Before we start to talk about your analysis of that paper could could we just have a little bit of an overview of that paper i know it's very difficult and somewhat awkward to sort of try to encapsulate or to quickly review someone else's paper but would one of you mind sort of walking us through the overall point of the tarbox paper yeah, sure. Um, and I'll, I'll divulge a little, a little bit of uh, context there. So Evelyn and I were actually pretty deeply involved in the development of that paper in its early stages. Um, so we were aware of it and asked to collaborate on it. Um, the 
the product that we're going to talk about today, our paper actually represents the divergence and why we stepped away from being on the author team. Um, but for us, once the paper came out, you know, we were we were ready to see where they had landed and interested to see where they had landed um, and quickly found that we were named in the acknowledgements, um, Evelyn and I were. So for us, it felt like a little bit of um, suggesting an endorsement of those ideas. Um, and broadly, what the paper attempted to do is to answer the question of is acceptance and commitment training within the scope of behavior analysis. Um, and the reason that we were on that paper to begin with is because we sort of set resoundingly, you know, answered, yes, of course, it must be, it, you know, of course it can be and should be, and yes. Um, how we went about in answering that question, though, beyond just the initial yes, was really where we found a lot of divergence. So um, what the Tarbox paper attempts to do, and this is, of course, you know, limited by my understanding of it, is um, to answer that question in a number of ways. It appeals to the historical context, and y'all correct me if I miss anything, it appeals to sort of the history of ACT as being grounded within, you know, behavior analytic um, thought um, and the background of the founders being behavior analytic. It appeals to the task list and sort of peels out particular pieces of the task list and points to how ACT might speak to, you know, some of those and help people to accomplish those goals. Um, it speaks to, um, and then it looks at taking the sort of components of psychological flexibility, the hexagon model of psychological flexibility and unpacking those behavior analytically um, and talking about how you would intervene on each of those in situations that commonly arise behavior analytically. And then I think the last piece is answering the question of kind of how it's not therapy in the attempt to kind of address um, how it would be different from psychotherapy. That's what I recall. <laughs> um, and to kind of summarize it is saying, you know, it, it came from behavior analysts' histories. Um, there it uh, fits, you know, there's particular task list items that you could approach, you know, through ACT. This is how you can unpack the hexaflex or the hexagon model of psychological flexibility behavior analytically. And this is how it's still not therapy. Um, what am I, am I missing anything, y'all? They try to orient it toward the seven dimensions as well, as I recall. And so, as you said, the overall orientation to both papers are similar in that they're both supporting and encouraging the inclusion of ACT, or I don't even know if inclusion is the right word, but the, maybe the combination or the integration, perhaps, of ACT and behavior analysis majority of your papers spent sort of talking about the divergences or the differences in the two sort of orientations to how that might look. Can we start with the agreement? Can we talk about why all of you think that ACT is an important piece that should be integrated within behavior analysis? Sure. So, and I'll speak for myself. I'd love to hear um, Evelyn and Troy, you know, add anything that I, I miss again um, from their own perspectives. You know, for me, I think that I would flip the question a little bit and I would say that it's not worth doing ACT if you're not doing it behavior analytically. Um, I don't think it's worth doing really any kind of psychological intervention or any intervention on behavior unless you're doing it in at behavior analytically. Um, so, 
you know, for me, should behavior analysts, you know, use what is shown to be useful in ACT? Sure. And they should use what's shown to be useful in any other therapy or other kind of intervention. Um, so, you know, there's, that's a kind of blanket response. In addition to that, though, um, you know, I think that one of the things that ACT really contributes is a way of understanding wellness. Um, a way of understanding wellness in terms of psychological flexibility, which for me is basically, you know, behavior that's under appetitive control, um, behavior that is broad, um, that is flexible, that's sensitive to a range of um, aspects of context um, that can easily come under control of different aspects of context. And that, that kind of putting, you know, putting, planting a flag in the sand and saying, this is what we're going to call wellness. We're going to call wellness people being able to move amongst lots of different um, areas of their world, take on different roles, do different jobs, and to do all of those things in a way that they're constantly learning, flexibly acquiring new skills and becoming increasingly sensitive to those environments in which they live and work. Planting that flag in the sand and saying that's what flexibility is, and this is how we understand it behavior analytically, and this is what you know suffering is, and this is how we understand it behavior analytically. To the extent that that's act, then that's I think that um, contributes a ton to behavior analysis and takes us away from topographical lists of what people should be able to do um, that might not be that might be ableist in nature, culturally insensitive, and certainly not in line with our um, sensitivity to the individual in context as our you know area of interest or where we aim to intervene. How about for y'all? Well, one thing that always pops into my mind is just like, what are we even talking about with ACT? So I think it depends. <laughs> um, but, but Emily, like you said, I don't think you can do anything without, it should be behavior analytic regardless of what it is. But to say is ACT, should ACT be practiced or be integrated into ABA? But like uh, my question is like, well, what do you mean by ACT? Like, what are we talking about there? And Emily, you just talk, spoke to the psychological flexibility piece of that. And I, I agree with everything that you just said, um, but I don't have a lot to add other than I do see lots of different versions or lots of different things that people are pointing at and saying that's ACT um, and topographically and technology wise and all the rest of it wise. And I might point and look at that and think that same thing and say, mm, that's not behavior analysis. And to me, that's not ACT. Um, so there's a little bit of a difficulty there and that we're not always talking about the same thing when we say ACT or we say ACT acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance commitment training or acceptance and commitment based coaching or whatever it is. Um, Choi, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add. <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't think that Cody necessarily imagined he was going to get himself involved in a philosophy talk um when he scheduled this but it kind of comes down to this right doesn't it um you know uh pat Fryman, a couple years back was uh keynoting just before the pandemic uh calaba in long beach and he said in his keynote um provocatively that all successful psychotherapy is behavior analysis um, you know, he's also a fence straddler like us, um, clinical psychologist who largely considers himself a behavior analyst. And so those of us who are coming at clinical psychology from that angle, um, ACT provides some fairly rich descriptive language through which to understand that as a process. Um, however, 
like one of the mistakes I think that we made in ACT training a long time ago was to really turn the mid-level terms into competencies and then um, create a situation where a lot of um, attempts to sort of understand presented behavior using that Hexaflex model into sort of things that you could get people to do better. You know, we tried, you know, in, in the early days of ACT, it would be like, oh, today's mindfulness day or today's diffusion day. And we would sort of work specifically on, on training up these competencies. Um, that of course is not what we're talking about. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the entire discipline of behavior analysis um, at large, now in the spirit of full disclosure, even though I am, you know, a made guy in behavior analysis, I'd never really done the sort of like mainline work of a behavior analyst. I've actually never done discrete trial training in any great quantity with developmentally delayed folks. Um, but if you think about the scope of work of anyone working in the behavior analytic field, surely, um, no matter how restricted your practice is, you're going to come in contact with verbally typical individuals with emotionally charged situations. You're going to come in contact with the sort of like run of the house issues that, that a psychotherapist would come in contact with. And what are you going to do with that? Um, you know, you can't really use Jolly Ranchers with an angry mom, you know, to try to get her to stop you know, undermining your behavioral plan. So sure there's value in there but there's value in taking the technology and applying it with the foundational theory and principles applying it with the philosophical viewpoint that is baked into the discipline of behavior analysis and so sure um, um we all agree wholeheartedly that it should be part of it in fact i think probably speaking for the other two <laughs> i think that we would say that it's animating spirit is there already like you can't really take it away it's not something that needs to be added it's there to begin with Awesome. Thank you all for sharing that. If I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like from your perspective, ACT is built on behavior analytic principles, theory, you know, the philosophy. And so um, from the ACT perspective, it's absolutely imperative that behavior analysis be integrated into any application of ACT. And I think what you're saying sort of on the converse of that is there are components or technologies within ACT that behavior analysts that are doing sort of more standard or typical behavior analytic practice would, would benefit from utilizing with their clients, be it if they're working with someone with a certain skill set that's engaging in, you know, behaviors like you were saying, sort of repetitive rule-governed behaviors that are interfering with their quality of life. Am I doing halfway justice and trying to summarize all of that? I think what I'd say, I mean, for me, the important part is not sort of technologies in terms of like particular exercises or approaches. It would be more um, like a broader, fun more functional way of thinking about technology in terms of the way that we handle and understand language and rule governance and, and not just understand it, you know, in the papers that we write or the lectures that we give, but how we actively understand it and intervene on it. So I think about technologies that way. And, and I think you're actually pointing to kind of a crux of, of what it is that we're railing against in this paper, which is the kind of adoption of decontextualized um, assessment and intervention on these, these sort of 
skills or whatever that are described, these, these act components that are described um, in a way that's totally decontextualized and almost like capacities inside the person. You know, um, I mean, Skinner kind of warned us of this, of how easy it is when we make things a thing to then put them inside the person. <laughs> um, and he talked about it more broadly, but, um, you know, I think that this is the warning of mid-level terms is if we sit there and say, well, somebody is defused or they are struggling, somebody's fused, they're struggling with some fusion. Um, you know, it really sounds like that's a thing happening inside them. And the best thing that you can do is go pick up a defusion exercise and like apply it to them. But none of that involves functional assessment. None of that is, you know, saying somebody's fused is not a functional assessment. Um, if we're, if it's decontextualized, it's not a functional assessment. So, so yeah, I think technologies in terms of language-based intervention of using language to make present contexts that are significant in people's lives, functionally speaking, certainly technology in that sense, not technology in the sense of borrowing kind of whole cloth from curricula or from books or from exercises somebody do on the stage at a workshop, not borrowing whole cloth and hoping that that applies because you're trying to intervene on things that you can't see that are happening inside the person. That's not the act that I would want behavior analysis to adopt. Thanks for providing that clarification. I think that's essential. And as you said, I think that's really sort of one of the major points of this paper is pointing those out specifically. So again, if we're looking at this paper, it's a response to the Tarbox et al. paper. You guys agree that behavior analysis and ACT can and should be integrated, but related to those, that distinction you just provided, you sort of have uh, perhaps a disagreement or a divergence from the Tarbox et al. paper, really based around three parts of the paper that, that you outlined and then maybe a central question. So could we begin to sort of paint the outline of your major disagreements and then we can go through each one systematically? Sure. So, you know, the main, the, the thing that it kind of all boils down to um, is us reading the Tarbox paper and asking, are, are all of what they're saying, the descriptions, the examples, um, is this paper <laughs> providing the context for readers um, to be able to sort of get functional assessment in ACT? Um, in other words, do they adequately contextualize in how they present um, you know, again, the examples, the descriptions, everything um, throughout all the pieces that we laid out, do they adequately contextualize it enough that, that we can understand some functional assessment that's taking place or that we can see that kind of process of functional assessment? Um, and, you know, across the, the board, then we break that down into a few different arguments. You know, one, um, we suggest that all verbal stimuli should be directly observed in relation to behavior. In other words, we should be contextualizing verbal stimuli and understanding it that way. Um, the second point, you know, related a, a slight a slight step away is that all verbal behavior then must be directly observed in relation to context. That we can only understand verbal behavior functionally by understanding it in the context in which it occurs. Um, and then the third kind of big point under those is that 
the function of behavior-behavior relations, how it is that relations among behavior um, are you know, functionally occurring, that that has to be observed <laughs> directly and in the context in order for it to really be understood functionally. And then finally, some of the ethical concerns um, with what happens when we don't explicitly present the work in this way. So let's dive into those particular issues that you identified from your perspective within the tar box paper. You talk about that the tar box paper says that the function of verbal stimuli can be inferred based on form. Uh, what does that mean and why is that an issue? Yeah, sure. Um, well, so what we mean by, by um, can be interpreted based on form is that Basically, um, the idea that anything that the client says, any, any rules, um, anything that we say to the client I mean, in both directions, that, that just seeing words on a page or just hearing words spoken, that we can take the literal meaning, the sort of agreed upon meaning of that socioverbal community <laughs> that taught us those words, that we can take that meaning and understand something about the function of that behavior, the function of, you know, the, the um, I'm sorry, the function of that stimulus, the function of those words, in other words, how they might um, evoke, elicit, you know, reinforce other kinds of behavior that we can just assume that based on what the words are, based on the form of the words, right? So, um, you know, there were a, a couple of different places where Tarbex et al. take verbal utterances, sort of take sentences that people say um, pretty consistently throughout um, and interpret it for the reader, <laughs> interpret how it must be functioning or what it must be in, indicative of in terms of, um, of you know, relations to aspects of context. Um, so for example, one of the examples we talk about in the paper is uh, they talk about a child built, having difficulty losing a game. So the child is playing a board game and struggling to be successful. And the child says, I can't lose this game. Um, and when the child says, I can't lose this game, they go on to describe that they're going to build an intervention around varying the topography of that statement, having the child say, I can't lose this game in lots of different ways. And then that behavioral variability in the presence of some rules um, that evoke avoidant behavior, that behavioral variability will kind of break that rule or make it no longer uh, function as such. You know, for us, <laughs> it may be that the people that were sitting in the room observing the child say, I can't lose this game. It may be that they had some information that suggested that that verbal utterance was indicative of a rule um, and that, that rule was promoting some rule governed avoidance. It could be that they observed that behavior in a way that it was contextually grounded enough that they could interpret the function of it. Um, but for us, we don't see any assessment of the function of the utterance. We don't know that it's a functioning as a verbal stimulus. Um, we don't know that it's functioning as a rule. Like just from the statement, I can't lose this game, it may or may not be functioning as a rule at all. We don't know that it's a proxy of some problematic cognitions that are really common for the child. I mean, any of this could be true, but without direct observation, um, you know, just seeing, just having that utterance, I can't lose this game, 
doesn't give us the, the depth. It doesn't allow us to contextualize it in a way that we can actually understand how it's functioning at all. What would y'all add? Yeah, or how it's functioning. And then obviously then what the most, most effective or appropriate intervention would be. I mean, you might not need act at all in that situation. Maybe it's some other issue. And I agree with you, Emily, like there's no, there was no, at least not in the paper, it's possible they did all of this beforehand, but it's not in the paper. Um, just asking, well, why? Why did that child say that at that exact moment? What were the conditions under which that occurred? And what's the child's history? What's the culture of the family? What do they have siblings? Do they have just like all these questions um, start popping into my mind? And then using all of that, obviously, to decide what am I going to do here? And observing, a pa observing patterns, of course, is important too. Is this just a one-off thing or is this a pattern? Um, so that piece is, is really missing. And I think most of the examples, that's what we see. And what, what I felt as a clinician, for sure, is just like having, I, I mean, I have such an experience of working with kids in, in typical ABA settings. I'm familiar with all of these types of scenarios. And really, there's, there's, I just was left with like, well, but what if this? And what if that? And what if this? And what if that? And all of those layers of context that could be there, all those layers of function as well that could be there, right? It's often, it's never usually just one function. Um, there's usually lots of things going on. And then choosing like, well, where, what, where am I going to intervene? And where am I best intervening? And that also depends on my role and why I'm there and what, you know, what I'm, what, who I'm working with and who the client is and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of different um, contextual stuff that is not pointed to in the paper and it really is just a kid said this apply this that's the way it appeared to be to me and that's hugely hugely problematic Troy yeah it's 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 unfortunate in a way uh Cody because you had said when you were getting us ready to come on that you were appreciative of the fact that the paper was organized in such a systematic way and that would make it easy. It, it sort of seems in retrospect that what we were basically saying throughout is it ain't necessarily so. So for all of these, for all of these um, examples, um, they certainly could function that way. Um, and then they could not. And if you're writing to introduce an entire discipline to an intriguing extension of your profession, you know, something that up to this point, you know, the 55,000 BCBAs that have been minted in the last, you know, 10 years are going to expand their work into this, into this field. Are they going to remember their foundational principles? Are they going to continue to look at situations in context and to try to sort of figure these things out? Or are they going to almost in a manualized way import these ideas by rote and assume that something that you're seeing in the room means a certain thing and then act accordingly. This is like the original sin of clinical psychology from the mid 20th century forward. And, you know, even if we think about clinical psychology as an evidence-based practice, right, this is all grounded in manualized treatment where someone walks in, they have a certain presentation that's been vaguely screened for, and then you basically give them the same intervention because that's what's in the book. And you don't have a lot of uh, sensitivity as to what this particular person's situation was, where they came from, what culture they're from, what uh, other factors might be influencing this. 
And so we've trained in clinical psychology, we've trained more than a generation of practitioners to sort of think this way. Um, behavior analysis at large doesn't have this original sin, <laughs> you know, that, that the, the uh, from the very beginning, behavior analysts are trained to think about fundamental principles of behavior that, um, you know, go all the way back to phylogeny, just to, to respond to um, conditioning, right? Or respondent behavior. Um, and this is ultimately what I think our response was trying to address was any of these things in, in the entire section among Jonathan colleagues um, could be true, but it was not necessarily so. And we didn't see consistently them addressing that, you know, you actually have to assess the function of these things in, in the room where you find them. And so, sure, we can we can we can go through each of these these topics, but but ultimately, I think what we are saying is that yeah, it's not necessarily the case. And are you in fact recoursing to um, fundamental philosophy and theory to make these determinations clinically? Well, and and I think we would even more so say like, and we have a technology that can answer the question of is it the case? We're not saying one never knows. Oh well don't do act because one never knows we're saying we have a we have a technology we have a well honed you know and constantly evolving technology of how exactly we would answer that question is it so and let us not forget that technology of functional assessment of direct functional assessment just because folks are saying words you know, pointing out that just like we can't understand the function of any other stimulus without observing an organism responding to it, and that function is unique to that organism, like we're suggesting that the same is true about verbal stimuli. You know, why would we assume the functions of a verbal stimulus unless we have a learning history that, you know, really readily and consistently comports with that of our client. Unless I have the same learning history as my client with respect to that word, there's no way that I can interpret how it is that that functions as a stimulus unless we present it and then I observe how it is that they react to it. And I present it and I observe how it is they react to it. And I present it and I observe how it is they react to it. Just like the way that we would determine the function of any other stimulus. And it would always be for an individual client. Um, I will say that while like sort of, you know, philosophically speaking, we have long kind of had this orientation. I was actually rereading about behaviorism um, on my break this weekend, because that's what I do on the beach. Um, and Skinner actually does this throughout. It, I, it, it gave me some uh, context a bit for, for Tarbox at all, because Skinner actually does this throughout like all of the late chapters there. He's like, when a person says this, these are the conditions under which they say that. When a person says this, these are the conditions. This is what we mean by this. So Skinner actually does this throughout. Now, it's not a therapy manual, right? It's a how might we understand the conditions under which people name these psychological events. So he's kind of pulling a little bit of a, a Skinner 45 move there, you know, applying the his uh, attempt at operationalizing psychological terms. Um, 
but he kind of does it from the reverse way, right? He says, if we look at in general, when people say things like this, it's usually in situations like this. He's not taking the thing that somebody says and then making assumptions about the situation that they're in. And I think we fear here that that's how verbal stimuli are being treated um, throughout throughout that manuscript is as if we can understand their function without observing them in a particular individual's um, context. Well, and also, even if you are right, even if it is right, and that is the function that isn't necessarily, you've got to think about the broader context in terms of designing intervention, right? Just because somebody's fused, it might not be appropriate in the context to do that particular diffusion exercise with that particular client in that particular moment. So it's not, so just to add to that, like there is other, other broader things to consider whenever you're designing intervention. We kind of get to a little bit in the ethical piece at the end is that it's not just about being right about the function. It's then about thinking about, okay, now I've hypothesized about what the function is here and now what is what makes the most sense or what's the most um, effective, best way to intervene here where I'm and what, at what point and with who <laughs> and where and how. Uh, I've got a handful of follow-up questions. I think I'll save those so that we can talk about the second concern you identified, which is that the Tarbox paper, from your perspective, said that the function of verbal behavior can likewise be inferred based on form. So the function of verbal stimuli can be inferred based on form as well as verbal behavior. Again, can you explain what that means? Maybe how it's distinct from verbal stimuli and again, why that's concerning. Yeah, sure. So, you know, words kind of have this, um, have this funny, I think, funny characteristic um, where we can and do um, unpack them readily as both behavior, you know, what is the person doing while they are speaking or emitting verbal behavior? Um, and then also that words once spoken can function as stimuli. Um, so we've, you know, oft remarked throughout, I think, behavior analysis and other treatments of verbal behavior, how sort of interesting that is that the stimulus products, there's stimulus products to all of our behaviors, right? So if I, I turn my head, my world just changed. It didn't change objectively, but the stimulation that I'm experiencing changed. Um, so verbal behavior, in verbal behavior, the stimulus products are really, really apparent. You know, as I'm speaking, I am hearing the words that I'm saying, and those, you know, may have some, um, may have some impact on my behavior, my subsequent behavior. Um, the difference here when we say the treatment of verbal behavior versus verbal stimuli and understanding both of those functionally is just in terms of whether we're saying what are the behaviors that occur in the presence of that context? So what are the behaviors that occur in the presence of those words that would be treating words like verbal stimuli? Or what are the conditions under which that verbal behavior occurs that would be treating the verbalization as verbal behavior? And so understanding each of those functionally um, in that first bit, you know, what, what I think the paper tends to do is it tends to take utterances as evidence of um, the world being arranged in a particular way that we might call sort of rules and people having these verbal stimuli that then, you know, influence their behavior in a particular way. And that 
sometimes when people speak, maybe our clients in a, in a clinical setting, that sometimes when people speak, we take those as contexts that are then influencing their behavior. And if we're going to do that, then we need to look at the situations in which those, you know, those verbal stimuli are present and see what kinds of behaviors occur there and do that focus functional assessment piece. And then as Evelyn was saying, and then when we intervene, we need to continue to see, are we changing the function of those verbal stimuli in a way that promote broader, more flexible repertoires if we're you know, talking about ACT? When we come at it from the verbal behavior side, I mean, what we're doing there is saying, what are the conditions under which that behavior occurs? And that would be the functional assessment. When are these utterances likely to be um, made? And um, what is the relationship between those contexts and those kinds of utterances? And can we even understand those functionally and broadly, like a whole response class um, that may include those utterances and other behaviors that are occur in particular contexts. So just saying here, just like we can't understand any stimuli functionally without observing a particular organism in a particular time and place interacting with that stimulus, we also can't assume the function of a behavior without watching you know, the organism engage in that behavior in a particular context and looking at the relationship between those two things there. That distinction is incredibly helpful. And I think as your sort of whole paper is aiming to do, is very much in line with sort of standard behavior analytic approaches to stimuli and behavior, right? And I think ultimately what you're saying is just because a client is highly verbal does not mean that the principles of behavior get wiped and we stop caring about the, the overall context and the behavioral principles that are at play there in this particular uh, issue looking at the, the function of those stimuli, how are those working and what the function of the behavior, what are they responding to? Um, and I think the, the way you present that information is a, is a really helpful clarification around some of these issues. And I think one that gets a little sticky for behavior analysts who, as one of you said, I'm not sure which, talked about at the beginning, sort of regardless of your primary client population, as a behavior analyst, you're probably going to end up working with people who have a range of verbal skills, right? And so to understand that some of the, these conceptualizations and approaches are gonna be very important. You, as a behavior analyst, at some point in your career, you probably are going to be working with people who engage in some of these behaviors and simply looking at the form of the behavior or the form of the stimuli in the context, you cannot make assumptions about that. And again, that is that is right in line with just basic behavior analytic principles and, and the philosophy. Um, I would just add there, Cody, that also the behavior analyst is typically a highly verbal person and that they are also part of the context for their clients. And so this matters regardless of what clients you're working with anyway. And that those clients usually come with surrounded by a lot of verbal humans, whether that's family members, teachers, staff, other people, other clinicians, right? And so all of what we're talking about, it really is important that the behavior analyst thinks about themselves as part of the context and part of the analysis as well. And thinks about, why am I saying that right now? <laughs> what, why am I thinking that? What, what am I feeling right now? Right? That they're able to do that and include that in part of the analysis when they're thinking about intervening with clients, whether that's talking to parents 
or directly with uh, uh, autistic clients or otherwise, um, that really, really is important. What's more, actually, did you hear what you did in there, Cody, when you were sort of summarizing that? You actually put words around how this is kind of a bi-directional problem between behavior analysis and psychotherapy, which is when dealing with behavioral modification, there's an invitation here to engage with complex language behavior, you know, which is bafflingly complicated because of the way like human language works. The other side of that coin is for psychotherapists is not to assume that because we're dealing with complex uh, verbal behavior, that suddenly we need to go to this entire different lexicon, this entire different canon of thinking about that. And that's kind of where psychotherapy, I think, misstepped from maybe 1940 to the present is to assume that um, we are actually dealing with uh, alter an alternate theoretical universe. You know, depending on the, the, the bewildering array of so-called theoretical orientations that you see in psychotherapy, that, you know, there's a different thing going on there. Well, you take those things, you can boil those down to learning, right? And then, you know, in, if you're someone who works with learning, that's your job, then you encounter some of these, these verbal processes, these complexities um, of verbal behavior. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, that's not, that's not, that's not my thing. So it, it really is this, this fascinating bi-directional process and you know, both, both camps have a lot to learn from the other. Thank you both for the, the clarifications. Those are really interesting and helpful. I have so many follow-up questions. I'm really enjoying this. I do want to be mindful of time and, and to make sure we get through all the critical content here. So I'm going to segue into the next question which is the, the third of your concerns, primary concerns with the Tarbox paper. And that's the, the Tarbox paper talks about behavior-behavior relations in a way that implies that they're both causal and predictable, um, irrespective of context. What's the issue with that? And, or what does that mean really? And then what's the issue with that potentially? Yeah, sure. So. You know, in any one moment, um, we could take the whole behavioral stream that an organism is engaging in and chop it up into lots of different currents. We could peel out some stuff we might call respondent. We could peel out some stuff that we don't even think of as, as being you know, learnable, although it probably is like digestion or brain chemistry or things like that. You know, so we've got all these different layers of analysis that we could think of as all different streams in um, occurrence rather in the behavioral stream. And certainly it is useful to see when behaviors come together, things that we split apart and say, well, that's emotion and that's, you know, thinking, and that's your avoidance behavior. That's you having a tantrum. Wow. When you have this feeling, I can see it on your body and I can see the arousal when you have this feeling and you report this thought, then you also tend to do this behavior. So saying all three of those behaviors kind of come together, that might be really, really useful. Um, where we sort of hit the brakes <laughs> is on the idea that any of those behaviors cause any other of those behaviors or without understanding how these behaviors converge and diverge for a particular organism um, that we could, you know, 
predict or even you know come close to predicting um, what other behaviors might be occurring by observing one particular behavior. Um, so you know we might call those behavior behavior relations, um, and certainly we agree with the idea that we can observe um, behavior behavior relations, analyze behavior behavior relations without appealing to mentalism. However, at the point that we start using one behavior to describe or to predict um, or as the cause or explanation of another behavior, you know, that's when we feel like we're getting sort of dangerously close to a mentalist perspective. So, you know, if I say uh, because of this client's derived relational responding, um, they are now, you know, about to quit the game prematurely, even though it has these social costs um, because of the way that they relate themselves to something, whatever, derived relational responding, or because of this particular rule that they have, they are about to do this. Um, saying it's a rule doesn't take away that ruling is behavior, like engaging in rules and making rules and following rules, that all of that is behavior. And saying one behavior occurred because of another behavior I mean, for me, that's that's hard break. You have left behavior analysis at the point that you you know call the cause for one behavior, another behavior. Um, you're you're not doing behavior analysis anymore. That's that's mentalism. Um, so that's that's our concern. Is that that happens when we decontextualize those behavior behavior relations? When we pretend like it's a complete analysis to say this thought goes with this feeling, goes with this overt behavior then you know we have we have not uh, completed the analysis from a behavior analytic perspective and if we say that we have if we don't include that context that can help us to then understand how functionally those behaviors are related in a particular context um, then it's it's a mentalist account um, and it's it's not directly intervenable we can't directly intervene when we say these behaviors go with these behaviors, those go with these behaviors, there's no context. And context is where we live as the interventionists. We are outside of the behavioral stream. So we have to have some manipulable context that helps us to understand the conditions under which those behaviors come together and the conditions under which we might be able to peel them apart um, so that our clients can be feeling sad and can be having the thought, I'm a terrible loser, and still be engaging in behavior um, that is meaningful to them and effective in their lives. It seems like the theme here is that there's a major issue when you start looking at behavior or stimuli outside of the context, right? And that without understanding the context, we really have no business in, in trying to interpret behavior or stimuli. And so throughout this conversation and throughout your paper, you refer to the importance of functional assessments and, and looking at the specific context. And uh, we've referred to, although not really fully fleshed out in this conversation, how a behavior analyst working with some of these behaviors within these contexts might go about functionally assessing these type of behaviors and stimuli. So could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I'll start us off. Um, so for me, you know, I say that we, we, 
understand um, a behavior when we can kind of readily make it happen. Um, so we understand it well enough. If I can create the context where the person that I'm working with engages functionally speaking in the behavior I'm interested in, um, and then I can shift the context again to where they stop engaging in that, you know, a small demonstration of experimental control in the clinical context, then I understand the behavior functionally of engaged in some functional assessment. So the way that we start that is we try. <laughs> we, you know, we 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 change the context to get the behavior occurring. We might start with some natural naturalistic observation and we have the opportunity to do that. Um, we might hang back and, you know, introduce a topic and watch the client behave, you know, listening to what they say, but more importantly, watching what it is that they do, and then seeing if we can shift it. So making small shifts to the context, typically for me, using words, um, inviting a particular thing, asking a client to imagine a particular thing, asking them to try a particular thing, you know, as we're doing that, I mean, all we're doing is what we do in functional analysis or functional assessment in any other situation, the physical world is not changing that much, except for the speech sounds that are changing. And, and certainly the, the rest of our behavior is changing. Um, but with every word that we say, we're able to introduce new verbal stimuli, assure that they are functioning as stimuli, watch the client respond to them, watch how it is that they're functioning, vary them out to make sure that that's a contingent relationship, um, and then introduce new behaviors that might be useful to the client in those particular context where their behavior gets rigid or, or stuck or, or problematic. Um, you know, so, so really we just shift the context over and over and over again and watch the client respond um, until we can discern what those functional relationships are and what the best way to build out a functional response class, a functional and flexible response class in the presence of those uh, difficult stimuli might be. You see what, you see what the, the challenge here is and we we encountered this as we were preparing it as well we get feedback that says okay well that makes you know your your, your criticisms make sense but how do you do it then mm -hmm. and essentially what we're saying is well you use the principles you've long known mm -hmm. <laughs> and, the, and the thing I, the thing i was showing up for me as emily was talking as i was thinking and the thing about being most behavior analysts or most people in aba is you have such a rich access to so many, actually multiple different contexts you can observe clients' behavior, which often psychotherapists do not, right? When I'm working in a psychotherapy setting, I usually can only see the client in one room. Um, as a behavior analyst at BCBA, I can often go and do some direct observation in a school setting in various rooms of the house with various different people in different contexts. And I can do, like I have access or the ability to really, I, I, I guess, you just don't have no excuse not to do it as a behavior analyst because you really, one, you have the tools um, um, as a behavior analyst and you have access. You actually have a lot of access. So direct observation. And just to be clear with what Emily's saying, we're not saying that you meet a client for two seconds and they start poking at them and trying to evoke a bunch of really high level problem behavior or um you know, really evoke a lot of suffering. That's not what we're saying. We're saying we're going to, we might do that later on with their permission or something, right? That's not saying we never do that. But we're, what we're saying is we are still observing the client to see what are they doing? What are they not doing? What do they want to be doing? What do we think would be helpful? 
where are they flexible? We're looking for flexibility. What under what conditions do we see flexibility? Like what topic? When I talk about this, I notice the client's facial expression changes, their voice changes, they look flexible, they look like they're under repetitive control, their behavior is under repetitive control, versus whenever they started talking about their their mother-in-law or something, and they just shut down, and we see inflexibility, we see aversive control there. Um, and I can get curious about that and start, like as Emily's saying, start playing with it and start um, using my words to see what happens. If I start, if I shift towards this topic, what do I notice the client doing? Or if I present it in this way, does that change um, their level of flexibility? If I ask this question, what happens? Um, and noticing, you know, and then we're part of the analysis too. So I'm also paying attention to how are their words functioning for me um, when they are doing, when, what, what, when I start feeling annoyed, what's going on there? What are they talking about? What are they doing? Why am I feeling annoyed? What does that tell me about how this works for them? Um, how do I see them interacting with others? If I'm a behavior analyst, I can absolutely observe that. Um, even observing how my staff talk about a particular parent. <laughs> That's something I can observe and might really give me some good data in terms of what's going on with, uh, or what some difficulties are with that family. Um, so there's such a rich amount of stuff that we can use our tools with. Um, and we have the tools and we can use indirect indirect assessment as part of functional assessment, right? We, yes, we're, we're ex explicitly saying you need to do direct functional assessment, but there's no reason why you can't also incorporate some indirect stuff, but it needs to be in the, in the context of direct assessment as well. Emily, you look like you wanna say some things about that. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think what I think at a fundamental level, maybe something that we haven't said is we disagree with the idea that if folks are experiencing lots of feelings mm -hmm. or reporting mm -hmm. problematic thoughts, that all that we can do is indirect functional assessment. Mm -hmm. We reject mm -hmm. the idea that clients are engaging in a bunch of behaviors that are unobservable. Um, you know, in part, I think because we all share um, some foundations in interbehaviorism and Cantorian orientations um, that suggest, you know, a distinction between private events and subtle events. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that we can actually watch anything that a client can do, we can see them doing mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, if it's a behavior that they have a name for, there has to be some public component of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have learned to name it. They had to learn to name it in a sociable community. So there have to be public corollaries, at least. Um, so all behavior, we work from the assumption that all behavior is directly observable, that the, the bits of it that seem too subtle for us to observe are kind of outside of the reach because the lack of history we have with a person. We miss, you know, more subtle behaviors, the, the briefer, our history is with them in the context that elicit these kinds of uh, feelings or, you know, whatever the subtle behaviors are, but that part of the progress of therapy is um, developing that sensitivity to those subtle behaviors that they become less and less and less subtle over time. You know, so we think that anything that the client can do that we need to care about is not happening in some domain that we can't observe. Um, that if we want to talk about diffusion or acceptance or committed action, that all of those are, are happening live in the room, directly observable, 
and we can observe them contextualized in the therapy context. And if we can't, if they're talking about some other kinds of things that are private and unobservable, then again, then they have stepped outside of behavior analysis and they are doing some other kind of thing, um, which is fine. It's just not behavior analysis. So it feels important to sort of acknowledge that, that there is a pull for folks. I think that if a client is having a big feeling um, or seems to be working from an assumption that we don't understand or that we disagree with, that there's some private things happening that we could only rely on their report to know about. Um, and we just, I think we just really reject that. Um, we think that we can see what our clients are feeling and what they are thinking, and we can get them to elaborate it so that we get better and better at that. <laughs> um, and that we are constantly developing understandings of what their, what kind of good proxies are for their flexible response class and inflexible response class or what their tells are. You know, for some clients, it's their eyebrows or the tone of their voice or how quickly or slowly they speak. And that that information, the way that they hold their body, all of that stuff that we might call nonverbal is as important, if not more important, when they start saying words than the content of what it is that they're saying. The content is just flags. It's just like they're giving us, I sometimes will describe to people, it's like our clients are giving us colors of paint that we can repaint the context with and then go, now what can you do? And then they give us another color of paint and we throw some paint on the wall and go, now what can you do? What could we do here? Does this grow anything? You know, so their content of what they're saying is important. For me, it's only important to the extent that it informs new ways that I can shift the immediate context in order to get more behavior and more opportunities to both grow their repertoire and assess, you know, where, where, I've, uh, where I'm not growing, where I'm hitting some limits there. Um, and that is fundamentally different than assuming that the client is responding to unseen, unobservable events that they only can report poured on. And that to me is kind of the heart of the matter um, for many of us. Is that, Troy, the other original sin of like putting the problem, because you basically clip your wings from being able to do anything when you go down that, right? Because you put the problem inside the person and you're like, I have to get inside the person and then do something to that thing that's inside them to make them behave differently, which is obviously mentalistic and really problematic and that's a lot of psychology it's like we've got to get the person to fill out this form to tell us what's going on and I can't possibly help them until I know exactly what it is they're thinking no no I, th that's that's right and as I'm listening to this I'm thinking that this point of view that Emily articulated so well is in the context of the overarching discipline of psychology I'm not I'm including behavior analysis in that is statistically speaking incredibly odd and i think one of the reasons that this is so controversial is not the right word but I, I think what jonathan and his colleagues did is perfectly reasonable <laughs> and i think that what um steve and uh, steve hayes and uh, kirk strassel and kelly wilson did when they started promulgating act in the late 90s was also quite reasonable in some ways it was a um a very well calculated deal with the devil you know because um when act emerged out of unr um it was grounded in, in 
some basic ideas from behavior analysis that were definitely out of vogue. You know, they, they were not they were not mainstream. This was definitely the heyday of cognitivism. And so pushing back against that tide was hard in trying to reach a universe of psychotherapists who had been trained to think in this mentalistic way to say, like, OK, first go off and learn all the fussy behavioral technology or not terminology, you know, learn that first and then we can start thinking in that way. This is a huge lift for people who have been trained to think in a different way. Now we have the world of behavior analysis and we take for granted that people have been trained to think like behavior analysts and so you know we're saying so do that um but it's hard and and so the appeal of technological training of saying like you know when you see this do that um is very attractive it's very attractive because you know professional work takes time and you know and those those hours are billable and how can you become as efficient as possible in providing effective service well you know we probably tipped our hands uh, a bit by you know confessing that we're all kind of closet cantorians i mean and this is this is this is a a very non-standard way of thinking and so i sympathize with wanting to um, put it into a tidy package you know but we just ultimately don't think it works that way. And then even like, I know you want to probably want to move on to the fourth part where we talked about ethics, like even trying to separate um, acceptance of commitment therapy from acceptance of commitment training. And I, I note here that there has been a subsequent response to this paper by, um, I believe it's pronounced Sihon, C-I-H-O-N, I don't know how it's pronounced, and colleagues, where th they actually just say straight up, but we don't think that this is behavior analytic at all. Um, you know, which is another interesting paper to read. Um, but I actually think that trying to discriminate between those two is also a little bit of a, a distraction. That, that at the end of the day, you know, what we're really talking about is a particular way of thinking and perceiving and practicing. And this is what we're advocating for. <laughs> um, and that's, that, that's it, it's, it's, you know, Emily says it in a way that is true as being sort of very basic and an extending of, of first principles. Um, but in practice, it's not going to feel that way because we like being told, you know, when you see the lettuce, put the lettuce kind of thing. Yeah. I think one of the things that shows up for me here um, is, you know, we, what we attempted to do, I think with radical behaviorism in general is I think that we attempted to sort of just describe things topographically, behavior and context, you know, stimuli serving different functions. We tried to sort of describe them topographically and only use function to describe relation among them. So to say like, you know, this is, this is him getting out of his chair, you know, one butt cheek has to be off the chair and, you know, whatever, here's how the behavior has to look or in context where the sound is above these many decibels. Like we really tried to take, you know, a structural approach when it comes to defining or describing the behavior and the, and the context in which behavior occurs and then use function just in terms of their relations. So when one goes up or one gets, you know, more interrupted or, you know, what happens to the other one. Um, what we're suggesting, I think, is taking that functional perspective and really abandoning stimulus objects or response forms altogether and sort of saying, well, if I can make a behavior happen, you know, readily sort of make a behavior happen, it comes with all these other behaviors in a particular context, then I 
understand its function and I understand the function of that context. And if I can readily um, predict, you know, when a particular behavior is going to happen um, by understanding that context functionally, then I understand it. It's going to look lots of different ways. It's sort of like, instead of coming at the issue and, and so we don't, we, have, we don't start with particular forms and then push for generalization so that function can pop out. We're suggesting starting like with promotion of generalization right off the bat, um, even when people are talking. So getting all of those different forms in and from the beginning, focusing on function um, as the thing that is you know, being manipulated or changed here. As Troy alluded to, I am going to sort of segue us into talking about the ethical piece. And I think that it's been implied and certainly talked about throughout this section and through this paper, but what is the potential harm of not utilizing direct functional assessment in, in looking at these behaviors and stimuli in context? So there's, um, there's a few that we would point out, um, and I'll maybe just give a little bit of an overview and then um, we can fill in some of the details. Um, so one is that we're gonna be we're gonna be paying attention to something um, while we're intervening. And if what we're doing is not watching how our interventions are affecting the particular client, if instead we're trying to match what we're doing to you know, a, a curriculum or a workshop demonstration or some idea of what it means to do act. If we're, if we're behaving more with respect to that, um, then, you know, we have the opportunity or the, 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 the um, we take the risk of, I think, perpetuating great harm because we won't know when we are engaging in things that are harmful. Um, it can, I think, disrupt our ability to sort of build a therapeutic relationship that's sensitive to the ongoing you know, shifts of the client to watching the client's learning and being responsive to that. Um, it can also, I think, undermine the whole idea of, of us building behavioral flexibility as we start to identify here is the exercise and here's the outcome I'm looking for. It could actually be counterproductive <laughs> um, if our overall aim is creating breath and flexibility in the repertoire. You know, I've seen folks demonstrate um, client outcomes and hold client outcomes as evidence of good learning that looked a lot like rote repetition of how thoughts and feelings are. Um, and that feels really, really you know, problematic and like a missed opportunity, frankly, if you've got people taxing, you know, thoughts and feelings as they're occurring, um, you know, it could be really cool to get them to be actually taxing and not you know, engaging in sort of intraverbal um, behavior. Um, I think it, as a whole, like what those two pieces do, what they end up doing is um, potentially creating something where um, we are insensitive to the fact that we're uh, could be harming the person that we you know, might be investing in topographically defined sort of forms of behavior that we you've decided are good. Um, and that to some extent that our learning history has come into bear in a way that we might not be actually sensitive to. We might not be detecting our own you know, biases, our own cultural distinctions. You know, um, we might be defining behavior based on some combination or defining target behaviors based on some combination of our own thoughts and feelings about what this person should do or should be able to do, what might work 
if their world is like our world, um, and you know some principles, uh, manualized principles about what acts should look like. Um, and it's so far from from our best. Um, Evelyn, what would you add? Um, I, I, my first answer was just the, the same problems that would happen if you didn't do a functional assessment with any other behavior, which you just summed up basically, but that you, if you ignore context and if we just walked in and observed a client engaging in, I don't know, aggression or some, some kind of form of aggression and then just assumed and went and blanketly threw spaghetti at you, basically throwing spaghetti at a wall and hoping that something works and then you're deciding if it worked or not um, based off your own history. And that's hugely problematic. And I would hope that we would never do that. And so why would we do that when it comes to verbal behavior or languaging? Um, it, the same problems come up there, the same ethical concerns. And then what are we doing also that's different from psychotherapists if, who are just looking at a person's diagnostic label and then just applying an intervention to them? We're not better than that. And we're certainly not doing behavior analysis. Troy, got thoughts? Well, you just asked what the harm was, you know, um, time, probably, you know, I, I, from the realm of psychotherapy, I have had more referrals than I can count where someone has received ACT therapy somewhere else. And then that therapy discontinues for some reason, generally quite benign reason, someone's moved or left a job or something. And they'll come in and they can recite ACT metaphors to me chapter and verse, and they have not changed at all. You know, so given the fact that most of us have about 80 years of riding around on this ice ball, um, you know, how do you want that life to be? And how, if you have a problem, how rapidly and efficiently can we move you to an agreeable solution to that problem? And, you know, looking at what's there, showing up to what's there and working with what's there seems to me, obviously, the most expeditious route to that change. Yeah, I love that. And in many ways, it's the exact rationale I provide to my students in my behavior analysis program or the behavior analysis program that I work in, looking at why do we need to do assessment? And I always like giving them the analogy of if you had a house plant that was dead or dying, what are the possible reasons that a, a plant would struggle, right? And they talk about soil, uh, heat, uh, water, like whatever it is, a pH balance, all of those things. And I said, cool. Like there are so many different variables that could cause uh, a plant to, to struggle. If you didn't do an assessment, if you didn't feel the soil measure those things and you just randomly started trying to apply one at a time, right? How long are you going to need to adjust the temperature for to know if the plant's bouncing back two weeks, right? So you go through all these variables for something as simple as a house plant going down we're talking about complex human behavior and you're just taking a guess. And I think it was Evelyn that said, you're throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks And to rain Detroit's point, how much time do we have, right? We only have one lifetime and it'd be nicer to more efficiently address their help. These clients address their issues. So that they don't have to spend their 80 years struggling with these issues that ultimately realistically we're employed to help them with. Right. And so I love that analogy, uh, looking at the importance of time in this, this context. Well, in fairness, all philodendrons are fused with the idea of spider mites. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
I want to want to add something there that feels important to speak to, and that's that the experience, though the felt experience of the clinician, is that this is slow. Um, that I can pick up whatever curriculum, act curriculum, and turn to page sixty-seven and have a thing to do today, and it might be helpful, you know. And and if I'm looking at if I'm looking at the act materials and none of them are integrating behavior analytic principles and, you know, this person is clearly doing, engaging in some behaviors that feel outside of my skill set, it feels like, you know, it's an inflexibility problem and that there's some kind of verbal stuff going on. It feels like picking up the curriculum and just doing page 67 or whatever will be faster and it might could work. And then maybe I could try 69 and then maybe I could try page two. And then surely one of these things are going to are going to work at some point. I can I can sort of feel the appeal because sitting down with a person who is suffering and connecting with them in such a way that that you can readily bring to bear these different contexts and that you're tracking their behavior that intimately. I don't think it's unique to clinical behavior analysis or to language-based behavior analytic interventions, but we all know the level of concentration and attention, you know, it takes to really watch the behavioral stream shift and watch it shift in response to context. And it can feel so slow if, and so bewildering um, because every new client, if we really take this perspective and, and center functional assessment and doing act as behavior analysis, then every new client is like doing act for the very first time. You know, you're building a unique relationship. You're looking for unique tells. You're trying to find which context squeeze them down, which ones open them up. You're growing with them into like the brand new therapist that they need you to be and order to successfully do this work and it's intimidating and it can feel painfully slow, you know, and it's, it's what promoting generalization from the beginning and centering functional assessment does to an intervention is, you know, it makes it more responsive to the, the unique aspects of the individual, you know, which means that we don't have a lesson to give that very first moment that we sit down with them. You know, we don't start with the water because, you know, that could hurt it. Um, you know, we start by seeing if we can get to the space that's going to, um, you know, that's going to be an important space to work in and then to see what kinds of things we can reliably do to shift the behavior. Well, the risk, and the risk of sounding uncharitable, I would describe the latter version that, that Emily just laid out as a professional approach and the former a paraprofessional one. And, you know, it's like if you are, if you are drawing a line on a flowchart and recoursing to a printed list of correspondences, and like, why do we need master's degrees and exams and extensive supervision periods in order to certify someone to do that? We could we could recruit someone with you know an adequate undergraduate education and tell them to follow the steps, you know. But but you know, for behavior analysts, we have an extensive training program and supervision program that leads to practice. And for psychologists, at least, it's more than that. You know, we actually make everyone pretend that we are you know, doctors of philosophy or, you know, fancy people with special hats. Using what we're trained to do, how we're trained to think, presumably is why we get paid what we get paid. Yeah, I've, I've heard that something said along those lines, but we're not applied behavior interventionists. 
for applied behavior analyst. And that's an important consideration, right? Uh, that first and foremost comes assessment, right? And then of course we use that assessment to ultimately inform what we do. Well, we are getting close on time. This, this conversation has really been really enlightening and informative and refreshing for me. I think the listeners are really going to like it and probably be very interested in the topic. So aside from checking out your paper, checking out the Tarbox paper that your paper is really looking at, are there any other recommendations, resources, papers, podcasts, like whatever that, that people could check out if they're interested in this topic? I have a, a few pieces of work that I'd be happy to um, happy to share with you, Cody. Um, I wrote a, an article on the clinical implications of vendor behaviorism for the Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science um, that I think has a nice kind of flavor to this this piece uh, that interbehavioral piece. Um, I also have two chapters. Um, one was for the Behavior Analysis of Language and Cognition book. It's on behavior therapy, and it kind of goes through the history, historical context, and private events, and how we've contended with that, and lands on ACT um, as behavior analysis and unpacks those terms. Um, and then a more recent chapter that points to um, functional contextualism and behavior analysis, including um, radical behaviorism and interbehaviorism as the theoretical and philosophical foundations um, of ACT. Um, and there were co-authors on several of those, but I'd be, I'd be happy to share those. I think they, they kind of come at the same thing that this paper does, but with different questions um, in hand, different specific questions, but we've touched on almost all of those things. So maybe that would be useful. What else, y'all? I can go. Um, not as readily available, but myself, and my colleague, Sari Ming, and also Julia Fiebig have a book coming out for BCBAs, well, behavior analysts, um, pretty BCBA focused, and New Harbinger are publishing that. And it's, we, we don't really talk about ACT much at all in the book, but we certainly talk about language uh, from a behavior analytic perspective and psychological flexibility and how psychological flexibility is shaped from birth right up through adulthood and you know across different contexts so also looking at language um, with your with the self um, right up to language in systems and organizations and groups um, so that will, I'm pretty excited about that but I don't know when that's going to be out it might be available for pre-order but I can give you the name of it and then people can take a look at that when it's done and Obviously, I didn't write that myself. I couldn't have written it without Siri Ming and Julia, who are absolute geniuses and experts um, and really skilled uh, clinicians and um, academics, too. Congratulations on the book, and uh, I'll link to those resources in the show notes. Troy, anything to add to people interested in the topic? Well, you could read Cantor's entire corpus. <laughs> that, that might take some time. Yeah, I'm sure the, the listeners will jump right into that. Um, <laughs> for those that don't know, Cantor wasn't known for necessarily captivating writing, although I'm saying this to big fans, so I don't, I don't mean to offend you right as we're coming to a close here, but probably not what he's most famous for. I agree. I would say that if if folks are looking for um, an act 
book that's recognizable both in terms of linking to mid-level terms and in terms of still having a foot in behavior analysis, although the terms you know aren't used as as the behavior analytic terms aren't as as readily used. I still love mindfulness for two, um, which was Troy Dufresne and and Kelly Wilson and a couple of us got to help out with that. So so Troy, I'm going to say that one for you. <laughs> Troy suggests <laughs> mindfulness I for second two. that. I second that. That's one of my favorite manners. It actually is on my desk most of the time. So thanks for bringing that up, Emily. Troy, your name's on my desk. Yeah. Uh, chapter three, Clinician's Guide 2. Two, right? I should know this. <laughs> Clinician's Guide to Stimulus Control, which um, uh, was, I think, largely Emily and Kate Kellum's work, um, uh, is, I think, the animating spirit of that, of that work. But it's quite accessible. And I'm glad it's still in print. Awesome. Well, thank you all for sharing that and sharing your time to come on the podcast to talk about this paper. As I said, it, it was really helpful to, to learn about this and to really see the emphasis that that ACT can and should have related to understanding the context utilizing behavior analytic assessment processes to do so. So it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Cody. Before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. And to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. I'd like to thank Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice, ABAI, the sponsor of this podcast, the assistant producers of this podcast, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin, and Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. 